Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Brian, really excited to have you on the show. You are building an incredible venture capital approach to Southeast Asia and also a serial and successful founder. So really excited to hear your story. Could you share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, for sure. It's great to be here, by the way, and a happy new year, Jeremy. Uh, For those that don't know me, I'm a general partner at Iterative Capital. We're a seed stage fund. So it's literally just fund. Uh, We just happen to run a accelerator on the side. For every company that we invest in, they go through the program. We help them for four. 14 weeks. At the end of 14 weeks, we'll run demo days. About 400 or so investors will meet them. And then the majority of them, I think 90% of companies, will then subsequently raise a round afterwards. So that's what we've been doing for two years. Prior to that, I founded three companies in the last like 15 years. First one was a e-commerce AI company before AI was a thing. Raised 16 million USD, worked on it for about five years. eBay bought the company end up in the Bay Area where eBay is, started a second company, that one went through YC. And then my most recent company is a $2 billion prop tech company now. And I recently, two years ago, transitioned from being CEO to being on the board. So the only thing I know how to do is start companies and grow them. Amazing. So how did you first get into the addiction of building those companies? I think maybe at the very beginning, it was... I just wanted to do something that had the greatest impact and impact to me was kind of like changing lives. And I, for whatever reason, I thought the only way you could do this was to build large businesses. And so from kind of like college days, I was like, hey, I really want to figure out how to be good at building a business. My first company was great, but it wasn't like a billion dollar company, right? And so... I was like, oh, do I join another company? Do I do something else? And I tried interviewing for bigger company roles and nobody wanted me. So like you just end up not having a choice. So that's why second company, that's my third company, et cetera. <laughs> it's a common problem, right? And I think there's a lot of founders who can't approach your experience, right? They had a successful experience, they steered to some exit, they had unsuccessful experience. And then there's a transition point about are you going to do it again, right? Which is, because you know exactly what you're getting into this time around. The first time, you're a little bit shaky and what exactly what it means. But the second time going in, uh, you're much clearer. So how did you, I think, approach that second and third time differently from the way you first built your first company? What was interesting to me was every company that I started, the culture, we codified it and it was slightly different. And so what I think ended up happening was the early 10 or 12 people end up being the champions or the like defining people for a culture. And so that itself was very interesting. Maybe when we talk about scaling companies, culture tends to be the one thing that ends up being very hard to change later on. And so I think as I was doing kind of like later, later stage companies, being very intentional about setting your culture from the early stages, what's acceptable, what's not, how do you go about making decisions, etc. was just really important. What's interesting is that you chose to take all those learnings about building your first company, your second, your third company, and then now you've made the decision to found something in the venture capital, right? The fund approach, right? Which is like a total opposite, right? I mean, it's definitely orthogonal, at least. It's still in tech. 
And also you made a geography shift as well, right? From the US to Southeast Asia. So walk us through how that shift in thinking happened. Yep, yep, for sure. Maybe what's interesting for folks that haven't gone through the experience is when you when you start a company and then when you exit, typically when you're like, oh, do I start another company or not? The thing that you're trying to shoot for is you're trying to shoot for like a better company, right? And so the first company, we we did fine. We raised 16, made money for everyone. And then I'm like, okay, cool. Like there's still room to build a bigger company. And so did the second one. And then same thing with the third one. I was like, I haven't built a billion dollar company yet. Like why, why stop? The interesting thing about having reached the, I don't know, magical unicorn status is when you're making a decision about whether to build another company or not, you're like, hey, how can I build a company that's bigger than my previous one? So you're shooting for like a $10 billion company or whatever. Most of the time people don't have, you like accidentally build big companies, right? Like they don't come up and you're like, oh, that one's going to be like a $10 billion one. And so I just didn't have like a good idea to go after for for a much bigger company. And so really early on, I got back with Suken, who's my my co-founder for my very first company. And I was like, hey, don't really know what to do with my life, blah, blah, blah. And think over sushi one day in San Francisco, Suken was like, hey, have you thought about doing this like accelerator thing? Why build one company? You could build hundreds. And so that snowballed. And then we got into this whole planning and strategizing about what that might look like. It just so happens that Suki and I are both from the region. So I was born in Hong Kong, go back all the time, saw family there, and is from Malaysia, is now living in Singapore. And so what was interesting is when we were kind of trying to figure out what to do with the fund, and we wanted to be different, we looked at different geographies, including Southeast Asia. So when we were doing early market research, Southeast Asia was just like extremely interesting. You're in a period now of what we think is quite the like inflection point. So several companies have gone IPO. Your executives are your meaning like, I, I feel like I'm now part of the region now. So all our executives now have some money, right? They're angel investing. You're seeing people starting to help each other. You're seeing kind of like nascent beginnings of what looks like a very robust founder ecosystem. And I think what's interesting is the thing that's lacking still is there aren't a lot of experienced founders in the region who have the time to go help other founders do the same thing. And so when we saw that that was lacking and we could provide that, that's when we knew that the kind of like iterative manifestation of it right now was the thing to do. And we have a love for the region. And then there was quite a bit of opportunity to build an interesting new VC in the space. Yeah, and it's been tremendous to see not just I think the success in terms of growth as a fund in terms of assets under management but also I think the quality of the founders and the positive word of mouth that I think people have shared about Iterative. In fact I think it was quite interesting because I remember when we first started talking about this it was very much I think positioning was trying to be like the Y Combinator right of Southeast Asia that initial accelerator and I feel like the vision has also changed a little bit over this time so could you share a little bit more about what the initial approach was and what you've learned a little bit more since kind of launching it, building it and scaling it and building out products on top of it. Yeah, for sure. Maybe to start off, I was part of YC 2014. PG was still there. It was like, I want to say like 60 companies or something like that. So it was still like super, super small. And you would get a lot of time with all the different partners. The YC experience to me was amazing, right? Because you all of a sudden have this like cohort of founders that you can type on. We made kind of like very, very long-term uh, friendships to this day now 10 years later, a bunch of our founder friends still get together every single year. You also get like very, very hands-on support from Justin Kahn, from Casser, who are now also Gary, right? Who are all kind of like long-term friends. 
And so the small YC experience was just amazing. And so we wanted to replicate that here in Southeast Asia. And so a lot of kind of like what we have done have been inspired by the early YC experience. I think the thing that most people don't understand about YC is everyone who's helping you is a founder. <laughs> like they, everyone has built a company and more importantly, everyone has like failed at some major part of building. And so uh, what's very neat about it is you are all in this kind of like very close community of founders who are just sharing their learnings and how they kind of like approach certain decisions or questions, et cetera. And so the reason why it's very hard to replicate YC is because it's very hard to replicate the like ecosystem of just like amazing entrepreneurs who go through the community. We're trying to do that here. Literally having this like same kind of like quality of mentorship and community around the region. So I think that was what happened in the beginning. It hasn't changed too much, honestly, from what we've done in the beginning. I think the only thing that's like really changed is we now have quite a bit more capital. And so we're deploying to more companies. We're scaling. We now have visiting partners. We have a bunch of like templates on how to do things. How do you do experimentation? How do you go about doing fundraising? So everything has gotten a little bit tighter and more kind of like replicable. And so we've scaled quite a bit. But the experience itself, I think, is still quite the same. Like we spend a lot of time with every single company. And I think that's the right thing to do. Maybe kind of like one thing looking forward. I think what's going to end up happening is you're going to get people like us who are specific experts, if you will, in certain areas, right? Because in Southeast Asia, for example, you run into very different challenges than you would in the Bay Area. Two very quick kind of like examples here are with very little money raised, your team becomes extremely big. And so all of a sudden you have culture issues, management issues, leadership issues, et cetera. And so you have to deal with those much earlier on. And very similarly, if you're starting a company in Southeast Asia, market expansion becomes kind of like one of the things that you're doing within a Series A, right? So you're in Singapore, it's too small, you're going to Indonesia. Or you're in Vietnam and you have to go figure out, do I do something in the Philippines? And so those are things you just don't run into when you're, when you're building a U.S. company. And so having folks around the table and in the community who have solved the challenges specific to your region is incredibly important. And so those are the types of things that we try to build to make sure we're giving founders the best experience in the community. Love that. And I think chronology, right? And showing how your thinking has evolved and approach has changed. What's definitely true is that why company to build something special in the U.S.? I think they're trying to replicate it for the world. And here you are actually building this for Southeast Asia, right? I think it's interesting because I remember kind of like, obviously, as someone who's in venture capital and a former founder looking at the startups, and I'm like, why Combinator and Iterative are picking very differently, right? You know, I just felt like the overlap in the type of founders and the startups are actually quite significantly different. So perhaps the end game in terms of approaching community has some similar dynamic, but the selection does seem to be different. So how do you think about that process from your perspective? Yeah. Great question. I honestly think it's not that different. The reason why I think it seems that way is because I'll, there's just a lot. Like there's a lot of startups in the region and a lot of them are amazing, great founders, great hustlers, executors, etc. And so it's not, it, it's funny because I don't think we've competed on any deal, uh, which tells me that we're seeing generally the same things and then kind of like picking most of the good ones together. And so I, until I feel like we're like 
directly competing with YC on deals, what that's telling me is just there's a lot of great founders out there in Southeast Asia. And so plenty of capital to be raised and deployed into the region. Yeah, I mean, I think to push that further, I would probably say that I think iterative picks a little bit in a more local way, I think. Uh, mm. Whereas I feel like YC does seem to like pick on very US-centric mm. credentials, right? Universities. Yeah. Um, work experiences, right? Yeah. And, uh, even referral networks. Yeah, that's, a, um, that's so, a great observation, Jeremy, because I think we spend a lot of time with founders. For those that don't know, like YC is like a 10-minute interview, right? So you go in and it makes sense because they massive scale. They don't have that time, that much time to diligence. And so a lot of times you're looking at the application, you're looking at a couple of questions, how people answer. It's great that the partners there are able to pick quality companies from just like so little time. And the reverse is we spend a lot of time with founders. And typically what happens is we want to make sure that we're fairly aligned with the founder on what they're going to do within the, like a three-month period to make sure that one, it's kind of like it will be trajectory changing and two, that we know how we're going to be helpful. And so what that tends to do is that tends to give you a really good insight into how a founder executes. So we'll just to give like a concrete example, sometimes we'll go to a founder and be like, hey, I don't know if I agree with you on here's what you think you, you think you should go in direction A, we think you should go into direction B. Could you try this? Like we'd literally tell them, could you try talking to a dozen users and asking this specific question, et cetera, et cetera. And then people will come back to us and be like, hey, we did this. Here's the results. Here's what we think about it. And we'll do a couple of iterations of these. And so what tends to happen is we're able to pick out founders who just execute well and think very strategically because we get multiple views into a company, whereas YC, again, just because of the scale, only gets kind of like the 10-minute kind of like snapshot of a company. And so it allows us to see, I think, a little bit more perspectives, which gives local founders, founders whose English isn't very good, founders who, I don't know, don't know how to pitch well, et cetera, just kind of like more of a chance. So maybe that's a little bit of what you're seeing. I think what's interesting is that there's also an interesting dynamic of what you mentioned a little bit earlier around the maturity of the ecosystem, right? So I think in terms of founders, in terms of the different unique challenges. So what would you say that over the past two years, as you work with so many founders across so many different geographies, what would you believe are some myths or misconceptions that people have about Southeast Asia tech or startups or founders? Yeah, I... Maybe, maybe the one that comes to mind is, is everything's a copycat. And I, you definitely see a lot of copycats. But like, I think when you're in the region, you'll find that a lot of founders have very deep insight into differences or um, even like religion differences or how things behave, things are different, etc. And maybe one good example here is uh, everyone in Asia uses like WhatsApp. Nobody in the US really know what what's whatsapp is and so all of a sudden ecosystems develop kind of like very differently right in the u.s everything's dominated by amazon logistics is amazing etc cetera, etc cetera. like in asia everything's fragmented no one goes to websites everyone's using their mobile phones right to like buy stuff including the retailers themselves most of the time logistics is extremely fragmented and so the types of businesses that became prominent just looked very different and so if you're a Western investor or you even a Chinese investor coming in and trying to copy and paste what you did in your existing region, it just like doesn't work. And so I think that's the one thing that I think we've been most intentional about is like, what are the types of things that look different here? And so that's like a really big thing. 
maybe another big thing is uh, Singapore in particular, I think, is quite strong in just very deep tech startups. And a lot of people think that don't work as well or their tech isn't as good, etc. Some like really innovative stuff is happening <laughs> in the region. And so I think what I'm trying to say is you're going to find very big businesses being built in Southeast Asia that like nobody even predicted was going to be able to be built here. And so I think it's just like a very exciting region to play in as a VC. I think this goes into like the, the perceptions, right? Whether you're an insider or outsider looking at a region. And I think there's obviously a lot of concern, right? Because they're saying like, is Southeast Asia, is it too fragmented? Is it never really going to be able to build unicorns, right? Because the last batch of unicorns, unfortunately, have struggled over the past few years as they kind of like hit the reality of multi-market, maybe fragmentation, yeah. different approaches. So how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I think the most concise answer is it's changing, right? If every single year the um, average GDP has increased, I think, 2x more than every other region, your middle income layer is almost doubling each region. And so it might, it, it takes seven, eight years, right, to build like a really big company. It's very hard to think about is you should be looking seven, eight, nine years out rather than like, can you build a company today? It's can you build a company in seven years? That's going to be not a billion, but like $10 billion. And I think if you look at the stats, and I had to convince myself of this, I think when I first started the fund, because I had to convince other people of it too, the answer is quite obviously yes. And uh, I don't, I, maybe like other folks haven't looked at this because you're not a VC. But if you look at Silicon Valley, maybe like 20 years ago, the stats look very much the same, right? Like people were asking, could you build a billion dollar company in like certain regions that look very small? And when you fast forward 20 years, the answer is like so obviously yes. And so the same types of things are now happening in the region. And so Obviously, I'm very biased because like we're doing a VC here. But um, I think in every single region, you're going to find not one, but maybe like dozens of billion dollars, not, not in every region, maybe at like three or four of the top regions within the next 10 years, you'll see like dozens of billion dollar companies built just for that one region alone. Ooh, within the next 10 years, this is a yeah. big prediction, right? Yeah, you it's going to happen. If you say like, oh, there's going to be unicorns, lots of them, and then you just don't put a time frame. That's you know, next one 10 thing. years. You you could, next 10 years. Like, you you, had, to, you had to hear first. There we go. <laughs> but I think that's a good conversation about next 10 years, right? Because I was talking to another VC, tier one, mm. and the investor was saying that perhaps investors are kind of like overweight too much on the next 10 years, but probably a bit too underweight over the next 20, 30 years, right? So mm. what the investor was saying was like, yeah, those macro trends are really good, but it could take 10, 20, 30 years to play out. Mm. But perhaps there's too much hype for a startup to be able to become a unicorn mm. within the next 10 years, right? Because of, it takes time for the economy to shift, etc. So what's your reaction to that? I mean, the differential, I think, of the time horizon from your perspective. I'm a newbie VC, right? And so I'm mostly like a founder. If I if a founder hasn't built, in my eyes, if a founder hasn't built a billion dollar company in like eight years or something, like, what are you doing? <laughs> right? And so like 10 years is about the time frame I think about. I haven't had the luxury of being like an experienced VC enough to think like 20 years or 30 years. In 20 years or 30 years, I think what ends up happening is like you get really cool. Maybe I'll back up a little bit. It, look at most of the companies that we're funding. They're mostly software, right? They're mostly like fintech, marketplaces, SaaS, like et cetera, et cetera. You can easily build massive companies in 10 years for those types of companies. In 20 or 30 year timeframes, what ends up happening is you have these like technology shifts, 
right? So you have like breakthroughs in power or breakthroughs in maybe AI, breakthroughs in, I don't know, a bunch of different. And so a whole entire category of companies gets unlocked. And so maybe my answer to this is when you're looking at 10-year timeframes, certain types of companies will kind of like come out. When you're looking at 20-year, 30-year timeframes, then another set of companies come out. What's interesting to me, we don't have to get into this topic, is most VC funds are structured as 10-year vehicles, right? And so most VCs are very biased towards getting kind of like LP-type good returns in a 10-year timeframe. And so it's actually quite hard to make these. I, I have a lot of respect for people who can make these kind of like 20, 30-year bets. I'm not good enough uh, quite yet to do that. I think uh, there's always the magic question for everybody. What, how people compensate for that, right, is that they have a portfolio, like say, you know, 15, 20 startups. And I think obviously you have quite a large cohort, right, of startups of multiple countries, multiple stages, multiple verticals. What have you seen, I think, in your pattern? What patterns do you see in your own decision making or in the startups, kind of startups that actually are doing better? And how has that reflected into your own like changes? Maybe to give people context, the reason why this happens in the very early stages is iterative. And I think most like early stage VCs, right? Like when you're looking at a company that has barely launched, there's not much stuff to go on. And so what you're really going on for good reason is, is the founder really good? And we have a particular, for us, we have a particular way to look at it, which is we say, can a founder navigate? And navigation for us is, do they understand what the, what, the world looks like maybe 10 years out if they're super successful? And do they understand the steps to get there strategically? What do they work on first? What do they work on next, et cetera, and why? Seekan says this all the time, which is in startups, ordering matters a lot. And so again, being able to be strategic in how you're going to get your tenure horizon to a company just matters a lot. So you have to look at founders, which is why it's very hard to be like, this sector is really good, or this region is really good, et cetera, et cetera. So the one commonality you'll see with us picking founders is every single one of them is stellar <laughs> in how they think about the future and how they like specifically execute which milestones, what types of steps, et cetera, to get there. What's funny is that's only like, maybe call it like 65% of the equation. Like there are tons and tons of great founders out there who just are amazing but like are just executing the wrong thing. And a lot of times you don't know and I don't know, right? Like nobody knows when the market kind of like hits and things are not great, et cetera. Being able to pull through, you'll hear all the good stories, but like, honestly, it's like 50-50 chance, right? And so there's tons of great founders out there who fail, not because they are bad, but just because the market was just not there. Maybe going back to your question about kind of like, what have we noticed across the regions? The commonality is everyone, I think, executes really well. The other thing that we typically look for is that they have some like unique understanding of their region that is like extremely unique that doesn't apply anywhere else, right? So it could be something like, I don't know, we funded Zcare. They're like a Indonesia EMR. They're quite the hustlers. I think what was interesting about them is they understood their customer really well, which is this like hospital that uses Excel to do everything. And in particular, they understood how to sell and onboard them. So we're looking for insights specific to a country or a strategy or a type of operation for almost every single company that we look at. We almost, I don't know if this is, I don't know what other VCs do, but we almost tend to not like companies that are like, 
hey, we're going to do great here in Singapore. We're going to expand into Indonesia, and this is going to be a global company. And I'm like, wait, you you all of a sudden leaped from kind of like this country, this country, the global, without really understanding all the steps in between. And there's like a million of them. And so for good or bad, I think we are particularly biased towards local founders who have a very, very deep understanding of specific countries and specific kind of like operations in country. That's a fair point, right? Which is that I think there's a big conversation about the only way to expand is by doing multiple geographies, right? Go from country A to country B, country C. So when you say, and you're almost inverting it, which is like saying like just focusing on one customer, one geography, wasn't it an argument that a single country isn't big enough to handle all of it? Or are you saying it's the right order? How is that playing out from your perspective? Yeah, I think um, from a VC's perspective, like me, the answer is like maybe, right? Like maybe a single, or I don't know, today it's probably, right? Like who knows, like five or six years out. But like as a founder, you shouldn't care, right? Like you could probably build at least a $10 million business or maybe like $50 million business, maybe even $100 million business in a single country alone. Like no problem. And so I feel like it's almost like a disservice for I feel bad poking poking at VCs. It's almost a disservice, honestly, VCs in the region to be like, what is your country expansion strategy when a founder is at zero revenue pre-product market fit, knowing that there's like a thousand reasons why they'll die before they get to even like a $10 million revenue run rate. And so it just like doesn't matter that much in the earlier stages. The service out of VCs. I want to keep going on this. So a lot of your startups obviously are going on to meet lots of other VCs, right? Because they have to raise, you know, it's like total amount that they got to go for, there's the follow-ons, they got to grow. So what do you think Southeast Asia VCs need to step up their game on and improve on? First off, let me say, I love all the VCs in Southeast Asia. They're super supportive. They're great people. All of them come to demo days. I think it's, I think it's a quite a good ecosystem. There are bad players out there who have kind of like bad term sheets, all that kind of stuff. But like as a whole, the ecosystem is quite fortunate with the kind of like funds that it has today. That said, obviously, I've spent the past decade in the US dealing with US VCs, raising from them. Well, almost all of them are friends. And so I have kind of like a very interesting lens on like comparing. I think the best way to articulate it for me is in Silicon Valley, most people are extremely independent thinkers. Meaning if somebody says something, they're even more biased to be like, I don't agree, here's why. And they will take massive leaps of logic and conviction. And most of the time when someone does a deal in the US, like 10 other VCs who are very well respected are like, why did you do this? Right? That's kind of like the culture of Silicon Valley. In Southeast Asia, it feels like the reverse, right? It's like most VCs, again, are really smart, but they need three or four other like really smart folks to be like, do we all agree? Then someone comes in and then takes like the first check in it. And so that's my biggest gripe right now with um, Southeast Asia VCs is there's a little bit more follow the herd rather than kind of like, why is this company in particular going to be extremely good? Oh, Jeremy, great job getting that one out of me. I totally get it. I also, I resonate with that as well. I think the number of WhatsApp messages I get is like, hey, are you looking at this deal? What do you think about it? And I'm like, well, normally you wouldn't tell me that you look at this deal. <laughs> well, one, because it's a competitive positioning. But two, also like, why are you asking me? Like, I think nobody wants to be the first dancer on a dance floor and get a dance going. But it does feel problematic at least from a at least I, I think it makes sense from a capital deployment perspective which is you want to go in and everybody goes in I think that makes sense but making a decision is not so uh, productive I would say yeah. 
Yeah, and I think I think it'll change too. And I it, honestly, it, it's nothing. It's not the people, right? Like the people, the partners are great. I really think what it is is Southeast Asia again just hasn't seen this influx of founders that have turned into like operating strong, successful founders that have turned into VCs. And so your evaluation matrix or criteria for a company is still very financial and maybe kind of like metrics driven. Whereas for early stage venture type startups, it has to be strategically driven. What is the thinking? What are the steps? What is the strategy? How are we executing? What types of things will we see if it doesn't go our way and how will we react to it? Like those types of things are much harder to evaluate, but allows you to be kind of like a independent VC, I don't know, <laughs> investor in the region. And I think this spawn, right? I think there is an influx, right, of Southeast Asian founders who are slowly becoming VCs. I think people who have built in the US and returning to Southeast Asia. And also I think an influx of like US capital, Chinese capital, Indian capital who are all kind of exploring the space. So definitely becoming more competitive. How do you think that will play out from your perspective? I think it's great, right? Like when it's more competitive, the way I think about it is anything that's good for the founder is good for the region. And so as more people come in with more capital, with more perspectives, with more diversity in thinking, I think it's just great because you're going to get better companies funded and they'll get more help from everyone. So yeah, I hope more people raise money and deploy capital in the region. And as you think through all of this, one of the interesting dynamics is you're making a set of choices around time, geography, attention. What do you think the region really needs over the next 10 years? Because from the founder perspective, right? And I, I ask this because I see the way that Suket and you both kind of articulate their philosophy in various LinkedIn posts. I, I, I got a hint about what you're thinking, but I would love to hear from yourself, like what you think needs to be built for founders. Yeah. So, I mean, again, we're very biased. And so take our answer as like, yeah, with like a pinch of salt. The entire thesis of Iterative is what the region needs isn't capital or isn't like smart folks who want to go out and uh, do companies. We have plenty of that. It literally is this founder ecosystem, super supportive founder ecosystem that allows founders to thrive. I think a lot of people who haven't been founders before just like have not really experienced this, which is when you're a founder, CEO, building company, it is an extremely lonely journey you're rejected 99% of the time. Most of the feedback that you're given probably is wrong. And the only thing that really matters is like how much you believe, right? In what you're doing and how well you're executing, etc. And so what people need isn't more people telling them what to do. It's a very supportive ecosystem of other founders who have also failed, telling them what they did wrong, how they would do it again later on. And that's the ecosystem we're trying to build with the people we're funding. I totally resonate with that as a former founder. And I think what's interesting is that I've had to do that massive shift from the founder perspective to the VC perspective. I remember I was looking at a bunch of terms, right? Obviously, we're discussing parameters. And then I was like, I totally understood all these terms. What I realized was that in the discussion, I was always leaning on a more founder-friendly version of these terms, right? <laughs> Maybe. Versus what is the VC-friendly approach. And then there's something in the middle that's fair, right? So I think there was an interesting dynamic where I had to be like, okay, there are good faith founders and there are bad faith founders, right? And so we need to be aware of this whole bell curve. And so we've got to figure out what a fair stance is, but that's kind of like one shift I had, right? From a founder to a VC. So I'm kind of curious, obviously you're super clear about what founders need and what an ecosystem needs. I'm just curious about how that perspective has changed when you shifted from being a founder to being on the fund side. 
Yeah. I mean, the short answer is it hasn't. We still try very hard to be extremely founder friendly, right? Like we don't take board seats. I don't care. I just care that you hear me out. I don't care if you agree with me. So like if you decide to sell your company or if you decide to grow much slower, then I think you should like, it's your decision. And that's how we treat like every other founder in our portfolio. Our terms are super straightforward. Most of the time when I look at other people's term, term sheets that they're getting afterwards, I'm like, what the hell happened here? <laughs> and so I think, yeah, for us, I think we keep to the, what would we want as founders just for for us as a VC firm? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm like quite strongly opinionated about this just because I didn't want it. It's what I would have wanted when I grew my company. And so, yeah, that, those are the types of things we try very hard to to keep as part of our cultural values. I think it makes sense, right? I think in the long term, I think building for the best founders and having them as the customer, it makes sense in the long term because they're building the great company, right? And I think everybody gets to be a co-owner over that time frame. I was interested because I was reading this article and what they said was, you know, funds need to be more customer friendly mm. and the customers are LPs, right? Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And startups are the product, right? And so yeah. I mean, I laugh a little bit and I was like, well, what do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously for us, it's the reverse, right? So founders are clearly the customers and then LPs. Honestly, LPs just benefit from a founder's hard work and sweat and tears. And so when everything works well, then it's great. So that's how that's how we think about the fund. I love my LPs, by the way, but founders are the customers. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, I think it all lines up, right? In the 10, 20, 30 year time frame, right? Where, you know, strong founders, strong companies strong VC performance, strong LP returns. But I think everything else in between is crazy. I mean, I get terms that are super straightforward versus what the hell happened here. I've definitely seen somewhere it's just like, wait, you just destroyed any chance for a follow-on funding yeah. with these terms. Totally, totally, right? Like, people, What are you doing? Exactly. I don't know, for your viewers, right? Like the things that just like surprise me is how many times a VC will come in and, and then like tranche their investment. Like if you hit this milestone, right? Here's something that happens. If you hit this milestone, something else that happens. And it, on the surface, it's like, okay, it kind of makes sense. But why don't you just believe in the founder from the very first place? And so like put all your money in right there. Other weird things. I mean, people have seen like weird liquidation pre preferences, other weird weird things around like options or warrants or there's some, I don't know, safe notes that have like interest rates attached to them that like serve like debt notes rather than like equity or like you're getting the benefit of both like debt and equity. So yeah, just lots of strange things that I've like never seen before happen in Southeast Asia. Could you share with us a time that you personally have been brave? Probably the hardest time in my life was giving up my company so, I mean, obviously, I haven't given it up, still on the board, all that kind of stuff. But it was a really tough decision, right, to go from kind of like day-to-day -day operator growing a company that was like quite successful to being very kind of like hands-off and then starting something else. So that took a lot of courage. And I think the reason why it took a lot of courage, I had this CEO coach, extremely expensive, highly recommended to everybody who's a CEO, was... It required a lot of introspection and kind of like letting go of your ego, right? Because a lot of times what happens is you birth the company, it's your baby, and your entire identity is attached to it. You've grown the team, you've led the mission, it, like you think about it 24-7, all your like blood, sweat, and tears have gone into this. You've sacrificed so much for it, relationships, like time, all that kind of stuff. And you get to a point where you're like, 
am I the best person to make this company public? Or am I the best person to I don't know, do X, Y, and Z? Because the company might need something else going forward. And so working through that and with my coach and then answering all the questions of should I lead this company to the future or not was really tough. Obviously, you guys know what happened. I took a step back, started iterative, et cetera. But that to me personally was one of the hardest moves I had to make and hardest decisions I had to make as a CEO of a company. Why is letting go of ego so hard? I mean, for example, when I left Bain as a management consultant, I was like, okay, you know, bye. You know, but from your perspective, why do you think letting go of ego is difficult, particularly for founders? That's a great question. I think a lot of it is because you had to do the reverse when you, from the very beginning, right? Everyone's like faking it until you make you make it. You're like artificially inflating your confidence just to let VCs know that you can like do it when clearly you can't. Like no founder I know from the very beginning is like, oh, I can clearly do this. They just tell you that. And so you, you've had this persona or thing that you've built for yourself to kind of like defend you against the rest of the world to be like, I can actually do this. And all of a sudden you have to be like, hey, no, I can't. Or like, I'm not the best, best person to kind of like move this company forward. And you have to like grapple with that. And so for years and years, or maybe even decades, you're, you were like one person. And then all of a sudden you have to, you have to let go and be someone else and kind of like move forward. So that's that kind of like psychologically is really tough. This is like really random, but like we had like a six month kind of like transition plan that was like very, very well structured and detailed, et cetera, et cetera. Like people, people are like, oh, that's tough. It's like, that's not tough at all. It's like the emotional impact and like psychological, whatever it is of kind of like making that decision was probably the, it was difficult and probably one of the, I don't know if it's brave. It was difficult. <laughs> To, to make. And there's a lot of truth to that, right? Which is there's an emotional layer to it. And I think personally, when I was looking for a successor, I had the same dynamic with the executive coach. And I think he said something that unlocked me was, you're not looking for someone to replace you. You're looking for someone who's better for this next stage of the company. And I think that was very like soothing, right? Because it didn't feel like it impacted my ego. I was like, I was good for this initial stage, but someone can be better for the next stage. I think finding that next person is really hard, right? For so many founders. So how did you go about is it grooming talent or finding someone to take over and find that person better for the next stage of the company? Yeah, I mean, I was lucky because it was my co-founder. She's amazing and she's particularly good. One of the interesting things about our company is we have to raise a ton of money because we're buying property. And so what ended up happening was I raised all of the equity. She raised it all of debt. As the company grew, like the debt honestly is more important. We've now raised over a billion dollars of lots and lots of debt facilities to go buy real estate. And so I was lucky. It was my co-founder. And I think wrapping things up here, if you could go back in time 10 years, right? It is a little time machine that went back in time and met yourself for coffee. What advice would you give to yourself, right? As not a person would be a founder and you're, I guess, a founder turned VC. <laughs> so I guess what advice would you sit down to yourself and that would be particularly personal to yourself? I don't know if it would be advice, but I think I would tell myself it's going to be okay. <laughs> like it might take 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, but it's going to be okay. A lot of founders are probably going through this, right? Which is as a founder, you just never know. <laughs> and one of the things that I think I've noticed now looking back and looking at all my friends, et cetera, like most successes come from a 10 year plus journey of just like failing over and over and over and again. And you don't know if your next move, you're just going to continue to fail, right? And so it's really difficult. 
But what you see with most successful founders is it took 10 years of like feeling like shit and failing before something hit because you've gained all the experience, knowledge, frameworks, et cetera, to kind of like execute well. So yeah, I think I'd go back and be like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. That's this. I, I need that as a t-shirt or the hat. <laughs> you know, it's going to be okay, right? So I'd love to wrap things up by, I think, paraphrasing three big themes that I got from this conversation. So first of all, was thank you for so much for sharing, I think, your personal journey from, I guess, founder to unicorn founder to now VC. I think you were particularly good, I think, at sharing, I think, those micro moments where you made those decisions. And I think the uncertainty that really happened at each stage, but also how you approach the process to, I think, process that and learn and change your mind and all these various dynamics. So really fascinating look over that arc of journey. The second is thank you so much for actually a surprisingly debate on Southeast Asia's 10-year outlook, patterns, trends. I like parts about it, for example, about what great founders look like in the region versus how, for example, why company tell me look at it. And how you look at founders that have that understanding of Indonesia or Vietnam or Singapore or whichever country that they're part of. And I actually also like, I think, your call to action for how VCs in the region could really step up, right? Ranging from thinking about independent versus contrarian versus more independent thinking, as well as being helpful and being more thoughtful about your startup terms and term sheets. So lots of different tidbits, I would say, about, I think, what Southeast Asia is going to do. And I think a great articulation of why Iterative is different and crushing it, I would say, in the velocity over the past two years. And lastly, I really appreciate it. I think there's this underlying theme of what you said of letting go of ego, right? I think that's shown through in terms of, obviously, your own personal journey about what you meant to hand over the company to your co-founder and letting it take wing. But also, I think, I think it showed up in what you're looking for actually in your founders, right? Founders who are willing to learn, willing to change their mind, willing to experiment with the suggestions that you give them. And I think it's a really great theme. And if I had to add a bonus one, it'd be like, it will be okay. We'll make, we'll make that t-shirt. We'll make it happen. It will be okay. It's like, it is like chamomile tea, very wholesome. You know? yeah. 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 Thank you so much, Brian, for coming to the show. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It was, it was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.